Welcome to the Startups Roundtable podcast, where we discuss the science and art of startups with founders and the broader startup community. I'm Tony Hackett, and I've spent over a third of my B2B sales career either working for early stage startups or as a go-to-market and social selling mentor for founders and their teams. In each episode, we will explore various topics, including decision-making, team-building, and growth strategies. Before we meet today's guest, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending today. The future of e-commerce lies in a customer-centric experience and online retailers want to create lasting relationships that will cause repeat business and referrals. And this is where SplashUp comes into the picture. They are an exciting startup, and I was fortunate to have their CEO and founder, Natalie Raffer, join me on the podcast. So let's get to it. Natalie, brilliant to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. To get us underway, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you're up to right now? Hi, Tony. Likewise, I'm very pumped to be here today and to, to meet you as well. My name is Natalie. I spent the past like seven to eight years being part of different high growth startups where I immersed myself in that ecosystem from the moment that I found it. I have been very proactive when it comes to like building things on my own or joining different startups. So my first sort of company was in building a, a social network that didn't take off. Then I kind of changed that to a consultancy, but then I always wanted to immerse myself in that sort of entrepreneurial and very startup-y sort of space. So I spent a few years at a startup that eventually IPO'd. And then I joined UNSW Founders in helping other startups as well. But I got the startup sting recently. And I guess I kind of just like wanted to do my own thing again. So right now I'm working on SplashUp, I'm the founder and CEO of SplashUp, which is a product engagement tool for retailers where we help them have a better, provide a better shopping experience for their shoppers for increased conversions and retention rates. And we have been at it for the past like year or so, so quite like early stage, but we've got, we've been getting a lot of momentum and early support around us from like different um, sort of partners or, or retail interests. So lots of things happening, but for me, I've always been a startup kid at heart. And for some reason, I think I'm just drawn to it because I, I just love all things innovation and, you know, how to make things different and better, how to break the rules and how to start small and dream big sort of mentality. That's a brilliant introduction for us. And I must say, when I saw your profile and what you and your team were up to, the first thing that went through my mind is you couldn't have taken on a more competitive market. So how did you work out that there was a space in this mature, obviously one that had gaps, but this mature market to warrant going and putting all of your time, energy and thinking into? It's This is a fantastic question, Tony. And I think when we sort of think about startups, we, we look at different things around interest, past experiences, and also like, for example, like skill gap. Like one of the things that I, I found was in my past experience, I was a brand owner. I started my own brand. I was selling like women accessories and bags and things like that. And I was a like a brand owner that like was had to go through all the nitty gritty things of building up a brand and social media and bringing traffic in and, and converting them and doing all that. And so from that experience, I found that like, you know, everything like that was saturated as well. But I learned so much and I had my personal challenges as a retail brand owner. Now, when I married that with my personal interest, where like for me, I found e-commerce to be a joyful place to be um, to be part of. First of all, retail, it's a, it's a massive industry, obviously, but it touches on everything when it comes to our day-to-day consumer life. So for me to be able to innovate within a space that touches a lot of people in different ways was really interesting. It actually gave me a lot of like energy for me to compete in that space and to, and to provide something that a lot can 
interact with. And the last thing about saturation, like e-commerce is definitely like retail, SaaS and e-commerce is definitely saturated. But when we kind of take a step back and think about what is currently happening in that sort of space, you, you there's always room for a lot of improvement. And quite personally, because of my previous experience and the way I looked at it, I always thought it was an infancy. There was a lot of noise, but I didn't think there was a lot of impact. And I thought, you know what, like, why not carve out a little space for myself and sort of expand and go from there? So yeah, we'll see how it goes though. Like maybe next year when I talk to you, it'll be like, Johnny, like, yeah, I think I think that was too saturated for me. But <laughs> So Natalie, the charm of audio is that we can go, we can edit this, right? We can- <laughs> We can retrospectively change what you said. I love a point you made there, which talks about the way I aligned your comment, at least, is with one of my favorite reads is around Seth Godin and how he talks about marketing, how he talks about smallest viable audience. So it's not necessarily taking over the universe, it's trying to work out where your tribe is, where your audience is. Exactly. And the other thing that stood out to me, I want to test with you to see if I've got it close to right. One of my favorite books, it was written maybe 10 or 12 years ago, called The Intention Economy by Doc Searles. And my very poor paraphrasing of of what is just a tremendous book is we look to grab the attention, but in fact, what happens when the consumer states their intention to us? How do we engage with that audience? And when I looked at what you're doing or what I interpreted as what you're doing, it felt like it was the first time I had seen an innovator setting themselves up for the consumer stating their intention. Have I got that close to right? I think this is this is perfect. I'm really glad it's a podcast and we can record this and I can take that for like other things in the future because what you said is just absolutely perfect, uh, Tony. Like essentially when I had set up that that retail brand, I had my own challenges when it comes to running a retail brand. You know, you had to drive traffic and you had to convert them. You would find people who would be interested, but their intention was not to convert today. And so for me, it was all about like, how do I build the building blocks to allow them, for example, to when they want to convert, I'm there for them to convert. When they have something that they like, I'm there to tell them about it. And I didn't have the tools. So I found myself having a, um, especially when you're selling products that, you know, you're not like Woolies, you don't need to like create stock up like every week on milk or juice or something. It's like, how do I bring these guys back? Like I found them now, what? I just let them you know, slip away like that. And as a as a consumer, I mean, I, sh- I love online shopping. As a founder, I try to be as mindful as possible, but I think my, my partner disagrees. Um, I, I found that there's a gap. Like, I mean, I'm a consumer myself from one end, I'm running my store, but on another end, I'm shopping for shoes. And I found that gap and I could relate to this consumer a lot more. And so what I found in retail is that there's a gap in terms of user research when it comes to understanding why people, um, maybe not, they, they, there is maybe an understanding, but it's like actioning that into innovation and turning it into something tangible that solves a problem is where I've been seeing the gap. And absolutely when it comes to users sort of saying, I'm not ready yet, or let me know of this or remind me later, or like, you know what, I'd love to know more of this, or like, let me share that session with my friend to see what she thinks or save that for Christmas. We are so bombarded with day-to-day stuff as consumers. We've got work on one tab and we've got our shopping on one tab and we can talk about this later, but it's really all about managing intentions. It's a powerful thing. And then I start to think about where data and intuition come into this. So you have experiences, which you've just reflected on. You've got other people with their experiences. There's data on one level. There is never enough data. On another level, there is always too much. How do you bring that down into the crucible of action? How do you work out what not to do and what not to listen to? The thing that we try to, at least at the moment, sort of turn down is everything that has to do with um, like algorithmic recommendations, which might sound like a bit like you guys are not following the Bible of today's, you know, human psychology and like, you know, conversions. And what we have found is 
when we sort of cut the noise of what these algorithms are trying to do for now, for now, I'm not saying they're, they're, they're great in so many ways, they're very powerful, they work. But when we start just asking simple data, we capture zero party data, which is essentially data that a consumer or someone is willing to share with you. It's really powerful, it's really accurate. And if we're able to sort of not apply like, for example, if I tell you, let me know when this is on, like, you know, let me know for my birthday, my birthday is in August, then you will have this data that is really impactful, where like, you'll be able to use this data to action it to tell me and remind me or to give me what I need, rather than guess, for example, algorithmic recommendation might mean that, you know, you click on something, let's say a black t shirt, they might infer that you like more t you're, you're in the market for t shirts, or you like black, Rather than just put all the effort on that, we want to calibrate that. At least for now, we're starting without it. To calibrate it with what people really want. It's like you go into the store, you can't sit behind a desk and say, is she looking at a black black dress or she might she might be in the market for a black dress. You go up there and you ask this person, hey, what are you looking for? Do you like this? Oh yeah, I love this fabric. I'd love to know you guys have more fabric of this. Oh, we don't, but like maybe, you know, that doesn't happen in retail, but like I'll take your your name down and I'll let you know if like we sometimes stock them like every couple of seasons or like every two months. So it's that, that is the angle that we're kind of going to market with. That's an interesting Venn diagram. If I could state what might be the bleeding obvious, and that is you're actually talking about using it as a means to a relationship, not just fueling the algorithm as you've just pointed out. Absolutely. And we don't use any of that. Like we try to move away from that because, you know, that's where I think all the noise is as well. That's interesting. Does that, does that mean that you are not only thinking about the consumer differently, you're thinking about the business customer? So your value prop to a business is that value prop and not the algorithm value. Or it's, it's, a, it's a hybrid, not an either or. Absolutely. And so if you think about, for example, the human focus, let's say like clienteling, which is what we see in high-end retail. For example, if you go to a luxury brand, they now have like customer support teams dedicated to that one consumer because the average basket value is incredibly high. And so it justifies, it makes a lot of sense. But if you go to say someone is selling candles or selling something that is not, you know, a $3,000 bag, how do you justify hiring for shopper intimacy when you're not, you don't have the large numbers to back it up? But if you introduce little nudges and introduce technology that is so simple, yet so effective, You'd be able to personalize at scale, where at least that's what we believe. And it's just about having that hybrid soft touch. You know, one of our advisors calls it the language of shopping that is currently missing. And I don't know if this resonates with a lot of people when, when I use it, but I think he uses it better. But it's really all about just simplifying it and um, using technology to not reinvent the wheel, but just like sharpen a little bit or like make it a bit more shiny. And sometimes it's all about doing that. So then when you look to the market, do you think about B2B as well as B2C? How, how do you think about B2B and B2C if I was just to throw those two buckets in? Oh, my God. <laughs> like my notion of B2B, B2C has completely changed ever since I've been on this journey. We are in the B2B2C space. So our, our product is essentially a lightweight plugin that integrates on a retailer storefronts. And this plugin acts like um, like engage, engaging, um, you can say, block that allows shoppers to dynamically engage with it while they're shopping in their journey to sort of state how they want to flexibly interact with an item or a store. And so for us, we sell that plugin to a retailer and that then becomes present on their storefront for their shoppers. But for us to solve that and crack that puzzle, it took us, I would say, double the amount of research and consumer validation because we had to go back to the consumer and literally watch Tony like every click they do and why they do it and ask them and, and, and reiterate and reiterate and then go to retailers and see why they're not or like what's happening in that space. What 
what what they're doing, then marry those and see if there's like a middle ground that we can test that we can test with. And I think we finally found it, but it's like, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm start a plan one day, you're good, the next year you're out. So yeah, it's really just all about removing the B2B-C barriers and just looking at it. Who uses what? What do they do on the other end? What's missing? How can we merge both together? And is there a chance that we can carve out something? It's funny that you use the word marrying there and describing it, because as you were saying it, I was actually picturing a marriage counsellor, which I've only seen on TV, just to put <laughs> on the record. But the thing is about being that middle person saying, actually, when you say that, what do you really mean? Ah, so what? Do you, how do you feel about that when you feel? And to bring those together, it ties into your opening where you're talking about consulting and startups and the like. So it, your journey to here is, feels like it is a bit of a melting pot for your background in what you've just described. Absolutely. And this is why for me, like every day, it feels like play. Like, obviously, it's not, you know, I would much rather actually play. But I mean, it, it definitely is is loads of fun because I don't have to focus on one area where it's like I'm completely doing B2B and I don't have to alienate myself from, you know, like just be focused on consumer marketing as well. Because for me personally, I much enjoy building one-to-one relationships and I found that my, I, I have a lot more fun working in the B2B space, but I love solving consumer problems. I'm much more interested in that sort of space. And initially I thought, you know, you got to just focus on one thing, but I refuse that and I thought no like I don't think so I think like why not just if there is an opportunity then I finally found that like it's kind of replicative of my internal interests as well so this is like I'm I'm generally having a lot of fun solving it um, and and I won't stop hopefully I don't want to stop where's your greatest joy in amongst all of this for you at a personal level it's really when someone when we're talking to a retailer or we're talking to a consumer and we see their reaction and Sometimes we get like, holy shit, like, you know, on the call. And it's like, that makes sense. Like, and suddenly for me, that's like, that's, that's all you want to know. Like what you're doing is, is making an impact. And I guess the biggest joy was seeing it live and being able to, you know, the concepts that the scribbles that I have, like I've got these Figma boards where I just draw, like, I think my team, they, I have like sandbox areas for me where I just literally just paint and scribble and things. And I'm the worst designer, but I have this idea and I, they just sort of like wait for me to get out of my cave to, to bring something that they, that we can all sort of like touch. And it's thanks to their effort that we can really do that. So yeah, I, I guess it's just like being able to con- see, touch something that you've conceptualized with a team and see that concept bring a lot of joy for the people that you're, you're conceptualizing it for. You've worked in the startup community for a number of years. I think if I look at your record, at least in a, in a published way, about seven years. This idea, it's more a general comment or question to you. If you had have tried to bring this to market, this thinking two years ago or three years ago or four years ago, could it have landed? What, where's the reflection moment for you when you, do you think about that? I wish I found that sooner. I think the market was ready for it and it has it was tackling it in sporadic ways. So the features that would at least we're introducing, and I don't like to focus on features at all, but they're not they're nothing new. Like it's not like, you know, we're they they've existed for like five, ten years, some of them. But it was really more about is the market ready for, you know, for example, using a third party tool that would capture some of their preferences or their intentions to then personalize that experience. That component, I'm not sure if like a few years ago there was that like sort of comfort, but the idea of these like, you know, scattered features that we currently at least offer, they've always existed. It was just a matter of like, how, how do we cohesively fit, like package them and make them 
provide like a much better user experience that would then allow the consumer to rationalize with that. And I think at the moment we are in the, like the, the market is, I think, ready for it. And at the same time, like, I think, you know, maybe, maybe everything works out, you know, I'm, I'm just a firm believer that like, you know, if something happens, it's for the best. And two, three years ago, like we didn't have the idea that, you know what, third party cookies are going to disappear. And I think now it's like, okay, well, like we have this product and they're disappearing. I hope they stop delaying that. But, you know, there's a core market change that will change the dynamic of how the whole industry talks to each other. So I'm not going to dwell on the past. I'm going to, I'm going to just look at this opportunity ahead of us to, to make the most impact um, for what's next. There's a very clear statement on your website that references third party cookies. And when I saw that, I understood that and it made sense to me. Are you finding you're still needing to educate some retailers about what that really means to them and how you're you're able to help them? So retailers are really knowledgeable about a lot of things, which is great. Like the conversation often is they will figure it out, they will solve it, but there wasn't anything top of mind that they'll be using. They was still leveraging the same methods of yesterday that are not third party to improve rather than step out and innovate within that space around why were you over relying on third parties in the first place? How can you do something different to that? And this is where I think there's an element of education because the thing around third party cookies is, for example, the intention of that isn't to personalize per se, it's potentially to retarget and to bring the traffic back. Whereas what we're doing is more around chopper intimacy. And so there's all of these different dynamics that are currently happening. And it's about educating them that it's more than bringing traffic back. And it's more than just, you know, sending an email. It's really all about bringing a much better shopping experience that engages and brings that user on that journey to carve out how they want their journey to be personalized. And this is something that I think Accenture found in one of their user experience reports. They found that users are craving pathways where they can carve out experiences and their own user journeys. And there's that element of giving them these sort of things, but I don't think it's, they're pretty switched on smart people. It's just like, you know, how can we be of a helping hand to, to help them figure that out? Could I ask you to share some of your experience to somebody who might be listening to us speak now that is thinking about starting their own startup and some of the, the first steps that you might recommend they do and maybe a couple that might look like good pathways but might be cul-de-sacs so they should swing out of fast? The one thing I would say is like if someone's interested in starting a startup but they don't have an idea yet, rather than just force themselves to start, find an idea just for the sake of starting, I would say putting that pressure is going to make them feel stuck more. Just go with the flow, go to these events, connect with other people. Um, there's so many different things happening at the moment um, in Australia that when I started, um, when I was at the University of Sydney, we had the, a group called the YES, which is like Young Entrepreneur Society. And that was like literally the only thing on campus as well as something else called Genesis. So like fast forward to where we are today. Um, back, back then, we were talking about how we have so many tools at, in front of us. But I personally, looking back, it was not much compared to what we have today. We have communities and niche communities of entrepreneurs. And even if someone, if you had gone to university in, in, in Australia, you will 90% find a community that has entrepreneurship. So I would just go to that. Twitter is a fantastic place. It's, I think, better than a lot of maybe MBAs. I don't know. that There's a lot of really rich content that would allow someone to bring, like have developed this knowledge. And, and it's kind of like reading books and organically immerse themselves in that space, develop some work experiences, and they'll stumble upon something for sure because the world is full of problems. But at the same time, I wouldn't throw myself. I think this is one thing that happened to me. 
where I found myself, I really wanted to start something and I, and I joined a program that connects you to other people to start something up. And what I thought was going to be a fruitful partnership ended up being quite honestly, not something I anticipated. And on that note, I had sacrificed a lot. You know, I had quit my job and some would call it foolish. I still think it's foolish. I wouldn't do it if I knew what I knew then. So I wouldn't just sort of see something sparkly and and jump, like go all in quickly. There isn't anything called a fairy tale of startups. It's, It's actually like, you know, we glorify it, but it's, it's, it's the trenches. So they've got to also be ready for that. That is cracking advice. If I sort of play it back, I, I've never thought about it the way you've just expressed it, and that is give yourself a chance just to learn in the environment, almost create your own play pit and whatever that is, and then come out of that with, I'm going to say maturity, and I think maturity in a lowercase m, not like a, a B, but you don't have to go from 0 to 106 seconds. It's take take your time. Absolutely. It's like you're learning, for example, if you want to learn how to play tennis or basketball, you might install a loop, like a hoop in, in your backyard and, you know, throw some shots, watch some YouTube videos and, and learn how some people would do the, the the things and the dribbles. And then after a certain time, you might maybe go play with a friend and then join or, you know, like a, like a team where you can be coached. And like the internet is an amazing place that allows you to have all this knowledge just like that, but you've got to practically put them in place. And putting them in place doesn't mean quit your job, put on your backpack and, and go to Silicon Valley. It's just, you know, like dip your toes in that space and organically like find if it's if you'll find your tribe and if you like it you like it like the thing is it's too beautiful to 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 leave and this is something I call it I always call it the entrepreneurial curse because it's a curse it's not a blessing trust me um but you know I I can't change who I am and if someone loves it then like follow your dreams and if they want to talk about it and grab a coffee let me know like I'll they can reach out to me and I'll be happy to. But yeah, it is a curse. That's a great expression. This is a wonderful conversation. I, I would like to know, in when you look at how you make decisions now, and even back to maybe just 18 months ago, two years ago, is there a step change in the way you make decisions today? Decision making is something that I aspire to get better at, Tony. So I'm the kind of person who like would go to Woolies and would literally sometimes like, like, oh, should I get an apple or a banana? Should I get an apple banana? No, I should only pick one fruit, which is so bad. But like when it comes to business, I'm a lot quicker on my feet. So I guess the one thing I would just sort of say is I try to reverse engineer the decision. And this is something that my partner had recently told me, which is like, I think inspired by Bezos, which is essentially like when you reverse engineer a decision, you'll be able to sort of say if I were like, you know, 10 years down the track, looking back at what I was doing, would I be proud um, about this decision? Would I have regretted the other pathway? Like for me, if I stop everything I'm doing, when I'm like 50 or 40, would I like look back and say, you've done the right decision? And I have a very strong no. But day to day, when I go through sometimes like what I'm doing, sometimes I'm like, you're crazy, Nat. Like, what are you doing with this? Like, you know, um, just just go get like, you know, a stable gig and, and just do that. But it's that long term sort of when I distance myself from who I am today, it allows me to be a lot more at peace with myself and knowing that my future self will be proud of me. So that is one thing. And the other thing, like, I also try to like, I'm the kind of person who asks for a lot of advice. So I am not a know-it-all at all. Like I, if anything, I rely a lot on information around me and I have to research and research. And that research means I always stack onto my advisors for little things like, um, how do I approach a conversation? Is this enough? Can I say this? Can I not say this? Because I want to learn from their experiences. They, they have a lot more professional experience than I do and life experience. And then I make that decision based on all these factors 
Thanks. And you've also given me a wonderful segue to a question I'd like to close with today around mentors and coaches and what might be some advice or some reflections you have to share with other people. The term mentor is definitely has been diluted in the past five to seven years. It used to be something when when I was growing up reading autobiographies of, for example, the Sam Waltons and the the Aya Kokas and these guys. They always had these mentors, someone that was more a lot more experienced that they tapped onto for advice. And I think now we see the term mentor. I think a lot more. It's just everywhere and especially in the startup ecosystem. What I would just want to focus on is just the term mentor, which is defining it as someone that you tap onto for advice that has more experience than you in that whole holistic sort of, in a specific space that you want to play in, whether it's, let's say, sales or product or data or life or business, there's so many different mentors. And I think they are crucially essential. I don't think I would have been where I am today if it wasn't for them. And like, they should be given a lot more credit. They're just incredibly important. And when you find them, you will just know how your life quality will be a lot better. Um, because it's kind of like having, wouldn't say a parent or not a parent at all, but it's sort of like having someone that you look up to and respect and that's giving you genuine advice and that's guiding you and calming you and connecting you to people. And it's just, it's just amazing. Like, I think you should definitely, like, if you're, li- you're listening, you should definitely find yourself mentors. It's not about going up to them and being like, hey, can you mentor me? It's really about building this, again, organic relationship and showing genuine interest in learning. And then that just happens over time. A tremendous answer and a wonderful place for us to wrap. Natalie, thanks for taking the time today. I've got so much out of the conversation and you've been very generous with your your commentary and time. My absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feedback is always welcome. And I would appreciate introductions to potential future guests to invite onto the podcast. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now.